In Daniel chapter 5, starting with verse 1, we're introduced to this man and uh, we're going to find out a lot about him and we're going to learn a lot about ourselves through this particular uh, passage. But in uh, Daniel chapter 5, starting with verse 1, we read these words. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. It says, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In this passage, there are six areas that will be brought to our attention. And the first one that we're introduced to as we go through this first section is that of the, uh, what we'll call the corruption of Belshazzar. The corruption of Belshazzar. The events that are recorded in Daniel's chapters 1 through 4 pertain to the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the, the, the uh, great kings, not only of the world, but certainly of the Babylonian Empire. And under his leadership, Babylon had expanded its territory throughout the then known world. And, and also he united it at the same time. Now, fortunately for him, his time here on earth ended on a very high note. And if you recall in our last time we were together, look at Daniel chapter 4, starting with verse 34 following seven years of insanity that was brought upon him by God as a judgment for his pride and his arrogance, we read this about Nebuchadnezzar, the last thing that God wants us to remember about this man's life. It says, At the end of that period of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation." And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. And we learn this basically are the last words of Nebuchadnezzar's recorded in the Bible. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar saw the light. God had humbled him to the point where Nebuchadnezzar turned to him and in trust. He trusted the God of Israel. And we see the results of that in this particular passage. And from history, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. after ruling for 43 years. And the ensuing years of Babylonian history, uh, till its overthrow by Cyrus, um, are filled with progressive deterioration, with murder and intrigue. And so what we have happening here as we get to chapter 5 is there's a time gap that takes place. And in order to understand better chapter 5, we need to know what happened in that ensuing period of time. Basically, there were 23 years from the end of chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 5, and there's a lot of stuff that took place in between then. And what I want to do is kind of give you a quick history lesson so you appreciate and understand who this man is, Belshazzar, who now is king of Babylon. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by his son. His name was Evil Merodach, and he ruled for only two years. And after two years, he was murdered uh, by his brother-in-law, Nergal Sherazar. 
took me more time studying how to pronounce these names uh, than it did everything else we're going to do. But Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and in fact in Jeremiah we find his name there as well. And, and uh, he was succeeded by his young son, whose name was Labashai Merdok, who ruled only for two months, and he was assassinated, and, ex- and he was succeeded by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who we will talk about because he is the father of Belshazzar. Now, the important thing to understand here is there was a scramble for power that took place. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, there was a scramble for who was going to take over and assume this great position in Babylon. And so what we have here happening is we have one leader there for two months. We have one leader for two years. We have another one who was assassinated, killed by his his own brother-in-law. And it's just an absolute mess until Nebuchadnezzar takes over and then reigns for 17 years. Well, we've got a period of 23 years that takes place during this particular time. And Nebuchadnezzar did much to restore the glory of Babylon. The only problem was that he did much to restore the previous glory of Babylon prior to the day when Nebuchadnezzar gave his, his life and his trust and his hope in the God of Israel. And so what Nebuchadnezzar did was he went back to the old way things were done and re- he reinforced uh, the uh, Babylonian systems of gods, so to speak. And that's what we find happening at this particular time. Nebuchadnezzar then leaves Babylon, he goes out and he has an outpost somewhere else, and he is the king, but we find here his son, Belshazzar, is also listed as king or co-regent, and it's important to understand because Nebuchadnezzar is still the king, he's in a different location at this particular time, and he's been away from Babylon for about 17 years, his son now is co-regent or king of Babylon, And as we look at what's happening here, we'll begin to understand that Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon, while Nebuchadnezzar is the king still overall of the empire, but he's at a remote location. It's important to recognize and understand all this because what we notice here as we look at it, it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, his father in verse 2, from a cultural standpoint, Nebuchadnezzar uh, was his father in that he was his ancestor, but he was not his direct father. Nebuchadnezzar was actually Belshazzar's grandfather. So whether you were a father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, uh, culturally speaking, it was often listed that so-and-so was your father. And so Belshazzar actually is the grandson, for our better understanding, of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what we find taking place as we fill this gap as we look at all this. Now we're ready to jump into chapter 5 and understand what's going on. Now look at verse 1 for a second. It says that Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of these thousands. In verse 1 we find Belshazzar's holding this great feast. It's a great party. It's a banquet. Uh, and it's uh, for the, uh, either in honor of or for the benefit of a thousand of his nobles which were his leaders who were out supposedly supposed to be out throughout all of the, the, uh, the empire uh, leading or running certain sections or districts or provinces or however that were broken out, they were supposed to be out running or administering uh, the, uh, the desires of the administration or the kingdom. Now the problem that we have here is that what in the world were they all doing in Babylon having this tremendous feast or party? Because at the same time they're having the party, we know from history that four months prior to the fall of Babylon to the Medes and the Persians, that the Medes and Persians had actually conquered all of the Babylonian empire and the only thing that was left to conquer was the actual city of Babylon itself. Now, it raises an important question because here are these guys. This king is holding this party and feast. There's a thousand of his nobles or leaders who are there with him at this great feast or party. And the problem that I have is, what in the world were they doing there having a party when their empire was under military siege? 
All of their empire had been falling apart bits by bits and the, and the Medes and the Persians were now moving into the city of Babylon and they had retreated. Basically what happened was the leadership had retreated and went back to the fortified city of Babylon and here they were having this great party. Now, what were they thinking of having a party? They were not meeting to go over military strategy or what they needed to do to protect their kingdom. They were meeting to have a party. Why? One word. Pride. If you don't like that word, let's go with arrogance. They were within the city of Babylon itself. They were having a party. And basically, here's what we know about the city of Babylon from, from, uh, from archaeologists. The city of Babylon had a wall that was 15 square miles around the city. It was built by uh, and under the direction of Nebuchadnezzar. We know that the wall was 300 feet high, 15 square miles. We know that the top of the wall was wide enough that you could have four chariots that would go across the, the, the length of the, I mean the width of the, of the wall and they were able to patrol all of the city of Babylon with chariots that would go. They had chariot races. In fact, we also learned from chapter uh, two, uh, chapter three when the image was built that that whole wall itself, that whole top of the wall was all made of inlaid gold. And so here's this wall that's 15 square miles, 300 feet high, wide enough for four chariots to go across it. And I believe the arrogance is shown in that, that uh, uh, Belshazzar is showing contempt for his enemies in thinking that, you know what, we are invincible. There is nothing anybody's going to be able to do. They had enough food in the city to last for 20 years. And on top of that, you do, you, the Euphrates River ran through the center of the city where a channel of the river ran right through the middle of the city so that they had all the water they'd ever need. They had 20 years worth of provisions. And you know what? They were just sitting inside there in just an utter contempt, showing contempt for their enemies and having a big old party. Hey, don't worry about it. There's nothing anybody can do to us. Guess what? We're invincible in our own little world. Boy, there's a whole bunch of people in life that think that too. Hey, you know what? I'm invincible. Don't worry about it. I'm invincible because I'm putting my faith and trust in what? In money, my bank account, my, my uh, possessions, my knowledge, my ability, the job that I have. I'm invincible from all the things that are going on around me. I got a diversified portfolio. That's what we like to say. You know? And, and that's basically what he's saying here. I'm invincible. Now, what's fascinating is from a historical standpoint, they, have, they, have, uh, they had uncovered a banquet hall that was 55 feet wide by 165 feet long. Archaeology, archaeologists have excavated a banquet hall, which is now modern Iraq, and they found this banquet hall that was there that would more than accommodate a feast like this. And on top of that, which is an interesting side note, you know, Saddam Hussein, during the Gulf War, took his military leaders and went into caverns that they had built underneath the, the, the town or the cities and underground... And a lot of a lot of those who are that are knowledgeable of uh, international affairs believe that Saddam Hussein used this particular city of Babylon as a prototype or a model for what he was doing from a military strategy standpoint, which is kind of fascinating because, as we all know, history does repeat itself. And as we look at this, it's an interesting study of what's going on here. So anyway, make a long story short or a short story very long. Um, they're in there and they're partying. And they're just being, they're flaunting it and they think that they're invincible and the corruption is seen and the fact that they're showing contempt for their enemy. And what's interesting about this is now there's corruption that's shown where they not only show contempt for their enemy, but now they're going to show contempt for God. Notice what happens. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, 
he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank from them. And they drank from the wine and they praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I want you to notice something that's very fascinating here because Belshazzar does something that's very reckless. This action is extremely reckless. And what's fascinating to me about it is this. What led to such a reckless act on his part? Look at verse 2. See where it says when Belshazzar tasted the wine? This was not a wine and cheese party. He's not sipping a little here and sipping, sipping a little there. The phrase when he tasted the wine literally is translated when he, in other words, when he tasted the wine... He really tasted the wine. The dude was hammered. That's how I'd like to put it. This guy was smashed. He was hammered. He was wasted. He was bombed. He was ripped. He was whatever you need to understand what was going on here. This guy was a wreck. He was hammered. Listen carefully because I don't want you to miss this principle. Under the influence of alcoholic beverage reckless behavior is inevitable and where there's reckless behavior there is always serious consequences Galatians 6 7 says this don't be deceived brother God's not mocked whatever a man sows that's what he's going to reap under the influence of alcoholic beverage, reckless behavior is inevitable. God's word in no uncertain terms always condemns drunkenness. And there's only one path that leads to drunkenness. And that's drinking. Duh. I don't know if you missed that or not, but you need to grasp that. That's a very, you know, it's really deep stuff right there. Now, Here's an important point. Now, don't misunderstand and don't distort what I'm about to say because there's people that go on both sides of the issue here and they want to jump at things. And uh, now, it's really important that we understand this. The Bible does not condemn having a glass of wine. The Bible doesn't condemn having a beer. Now, it's real important that you recognize and understand that because, see, what happens is this. Depending on where you fall on certain issues, we all try to make the Bible say what we want it to say. And that's a very dangerous thing, and I'm not going to do that. However, I am going to say this. That is not a convenient excuse to overlook all of the warnings that God does give us as far as the problem and the seriousness of drunkenness. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to recognize and understand specifically what the Word of God has to say. And that's why we need to take a good hard look at it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Turn with me for a second and take a look at what God does have to say. Because I'll guarantee you this, what God has to say is very clear unless you clearly don't want to hear what He has to say. Proverbs chapter 20, look at verse 1. It says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. 
and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Every time I went to a Los Angeles Rams, L.A. Raider football game, God reminded me of this verse. (laughs) You couldn't go there without this one popping back into your remembrance. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. People were getting hammered and then they were hammering people. That's just the way that it was. It's unbelievable how true the Word of God is. Some say, well, I'm just a social drinker. But how many times have you been out socially having a drink when somebody had way too much and started pounding somebody else? Why? Because it mocks us. We think we can handle it. We think we can control it. We think we're not going to have a problem with it. And the next thing you know, it mocks us because of its power of influence over our life. We've all been there. We've seen people have had too much to drink, and the next thing you know, they're arguing with somebody. They're saying something to someone that they're going to regret later. They're saying things that they don't even remember saying, and they're doing things that they don't even remember that they did. Oh, let's stop and think about it. What does God really have to say about the problem of intoxication? God says this, whoever gets drunk is not wise. The book of Proverbs is a book of contrast. It has to do with living one of two ways, either living a way that is wise and pleasing before God, and or it has to do with the contrast of that, of living a foolish life and a life that is displeasing to God. So the, the obvious the thing that you have to ask yourself is this. Is drinking a wise thing that leads me in my relationship to God in a proper way that's right? Or is drinking going to lead me in a foolish way to do foolish things, to say foolish things, in a way that I'll regret as far as my relationship with God? Those are the simple questions that you have to ask yourself. And you know what? Personally, I'm not hung up on whether you have a glass of wine or a beer. But I would tell you this. We need to get into the Word of God and see what it has to say and really challenge why we do the things that we do. Because frankly, I've learned this about myself and the rest of you who I've come to know personally, and that's this. We're always looking for a way to rationalize what we want to do. Period. We will find some way to rationalize what we want to do. But we also find people that want to try to push their agenda down our throats at the expense of the truth of the Word of God. I'm not going to do that. I am going to challenge you to think of something. That's this. How wise is it? Is it wise behavior? That's what you have to ask yourself. And if you've got a problem with that, look at Proverbs 23, verse 33. This is kind of fascinating. Oh, let's start with verse Oh, let's start with verse 29. Oh, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes? Who do you think? Oh, let's read on. Those who linger over wine. Ask Belshazzar. He didn't have that porcelain thing to hug, but I guarantee you, he was having his own problems in his own way. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it's red, which has to do with intoxicating value or the level of alcohol that's in it. When it sparkles in a cup, when it goes down so smooth. I love this. So it says, at last it bites like a serpent. Have you ever seen you know, a stereotype of somebody that's having a drink, they slam down a, you know, a, a shot of whiskey or whatever, and they go, ah, oh! it's like so smooth. And they say it's like so smooth till their gut rots out. You know? But it's like it goes down nice and smooth, and then all of a sudden there's a bite. See what it says? That's what God says. It's amazing. At last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Oh, here we go. Your eyes will see strange things. 
and your mind will utter perverse things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, old military man, I hear you. A little flashback there, didn't you? Where am I? Interesting. The prophet Hosea says this, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. Wine in the Bible is often connected with immorality. It has to do with controlling our heart, our desires, uh, the things that we do, our actions. The book of Ephesians says, don't get drunk on wine for its dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, he actually does more than give out awards once a year. We read this, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Don't try to avoid the meaning and intent of the statement by saying it has to do with wrong motives. The reality is this. A person that gets drunk often ends up in a situation where they compromise their moral values. A person that gets drunk often ends up in a situation where they don't stand for their moral convictions because they lose the strength of that conviction. Guys try to get women drunk for one purpose, and God knows it, and he doesn't mince words when it comes to it. It goes both ways, but the reality, as far as drinking is concerned, is we need to recognize that, you know what? God never allows drunkenness to be our excuse for subsequent actions. You know why? Because it holds us accountable for the first choice, which was the decision to drink. It's a very real problem that we have in our culture, and we need to recognize it and understand it. It's very frustrating as a parent sometimes to see what's going around in our high schools today or, or, or even you know, in our colleges. But the reality is that in the high school that our kids go to, it's not uncommon for parents to go out and buy beer for their kids to party at their house rather than have them go somewhere else and get in an accident while they're out driving around. And after all, everybody does it, so I'm going to just go buy a keg. I'll have them come to our backyard and we'll just have the party there so we can supervise them. How stupid are we? pretty stupid because let me tell you something what God says is wrong we will never make it right we think we're so smart but we're really not the point is this and don't miss it drunkenness is never an excuse for our actions and God holds us accountable for the choice that we make when we decide to drink the second principle is this Trying to escape life's problems through drinking or drugs never leads to solution, but only to greater problems. You follow that? Belshazzar, Bel, Belshazzar shows his contempt for the power of men by what? Hosting the party. Now he displays his contempt for the power of the living God by desecrating the temple vessels. If you recall, Nebuchadnezzar had these items taken from uh, Jerusalem in the initial siege, had him brought back to Babylon. But then when Nebuchadnezzar put his faith and trust in the living God, you know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He took those vessels that were holy vessels, according to the nation of Israel, and he put them away for safekeeping. Now listen to the contempt of this man who is now hammered. He is drunk, he is ripped, and he decides in the midst of this drunken stupor, he says, hey, go get me the vessels that were taken from Jerusalem. Go get them and bring them out. You know why? Because we're going to hold that God of Israel in great contempt. 
I'm going to hold the God of my grandfather who sold out and turned to this God of Israel. I'm going to hold him in contempt too. And I'm going to get these vessels and we're going to fill them up and we're going to drink them and we're going to party and we're going to just flaunt them in the face of this God of Israel. That's what they were going to do. And notice how often God repeats it back in Daniel chapter 3. Don't miss this. Look what he says. I mean, Daniel chapter 5, he says this. He ordered that those specific vessels be brought. He ordered that they be brought, the ones that were taken out of the temple, for the purpose that they would all drink in them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. God is very specific about this particular act. This act was in direct defiance and contempt for God. He didn't say, go get other vessels that we took from the other empires that we conquered, which would have filled the place up. He didn't say that. He wanted these specific vessels. And you know why he wanted them? So he he could flaunt it in the face of God. And you know why he did it? Because all his senses were diminished because he was hammered. And he was stupid. And you know what? And God's going to hold him accountable for what he's about to do. Isn't that fascinating? Look what it says also. He turned, you know, here's Belshazzar turned from the God of Israel and he turned back to the gods of Babylon. It says in verse 4, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. There were at least four gods of Chaldea to, to whom, you know, this drunken adulation was given. The first was Merduk, who was the chief god of the pantheon. And what's fascinating is uh, Nabu or Nabu, the god of wisdom, literature, and education was there. Nebonidus was named after him. There was Nergal, the god of war. Nergal Sherizar was named after him. Then there was Ishtar, the goddess of fertility and patron saint of the phallic cult, which is really fascinating because here's what was happening here. So you understand the depravity of what's going on. This man calls for a great party. They are all drunk. They are hammered. There are women there. The wives are there. The concubines are there. He sends for the vessels that were to be taken that were in honor of the God of Israel. He fills them up with wine and they're having a big stinking drunken orgy in contempt of God. And they think because the wall's 300 feet high and 15 square miles, they think they're invincible. Duh. Talk about pride and arrogance, sexual sin, attitude of invincibility, contempt for God and His standard. I mean, Babylon has just fallen apart. And what's fascinating as we look at all this and understand exactly what's going on, it was like Belshazzar questioned everything that had taken place prior to him. Think about it. He was familiar with the prophecy concerning Babylon. He knew that the prophecy was in chapter 2, the vision that God had revealed, the dream that God revealed to Daniel, and also the interpretation of the dream. He knew that one day there was a nation that would come and conquer Babylon, which is fascinating, and yet he didn't believe it. He tried to stand toe-to-toe and challenge God and the sovereignty of God, the same thing Nebuchadnezzar did, and it didn't work. If God was so powerful, he was probably wondering, uh, where was he when his people were led into captivity? And the temple was plundered originally. That's a good question. But what he didn't understand, what many people today don't understand is this. You know that people to accomplish his plan and purpose? That God uses people often to enact a judgment on his kids when his kids are out of line? 
He didn't understand that God used Babylon to teach the nation of Israel a lesson that they could not continue to do what was wrong before God without experiencing the certainty of the judgment of God. And God used Babylon to enact judgment against the nation of Israel. Now, where was God? He was probably wondering when, uh, when he assaulted the mighty, the mighty Chaldeans and their pagan gods and everything that was going on. And he was probably wondering right there at that moment, if that God really exists, where is he now when we're flaunting this in his face? Isn't that interesting? Those are all familiar questions. We all struggle and wrestle with those questions. But what's fascinating about all of it is, you know what? I'm sitting there going, man, how would you like to be that arrogant? And I'm going, I'm just so glad that I don't show that type of contempt to God. So I'm out for a run this morning, and I'm praying about this. And God goes, no, he didn't really say this. No, so don't get goofy on me. But, uh, you, know, as, you know, it's amazing when you're in pain, you, you really are in tune to God's voice. And uh, so as I was out running in, 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 in pain, um, I was thinking, you know, wow, what's it, what's it like to be so prideful and arrogant that you would show such contempt toward God? And here's, here's kind of, take it for what it's worth. And I'm thinking, I'd never do something like that. And God goes, really? Consider what Belshazzar did. He failed to acknowledge God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, what? What? In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he, but the beginning of that is, don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your path straight. So I'm running thinking, hey, you know what? Do I always acknowledge God? Do I always acknowledge Him? Put Him first in my life? Seek Him first? Think about this. Belshazzar, he didn't acknowledge God. He didn't acknowledge Him at all. And I'm often guilty of that myself. I'm guilty of contempt before God when I don't acknowledge Him in my life. Then I'm thinking, well, you know what? What else does He do? Well, He turns to human beings instead of God when He needs wisdom. God says, if any man lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask of me. And I'll give it to you generously and above reproach. So now I'm running a little further and God's like, hey, every time you need wisdom, do you always seek out my wisdom or are you seeking out the counsel of people around you? Strike two. (laughs) Then I'm starting to look around make sure a car's not coming. (laughs) Then I'm going, man, I'm a lot like this guy. Do I always put God's will first or does my will and my program come before what God wants me to do in my life? Hey man, Belshazzar's program was all that mattered to him. His kingdom was all he was worried about. He wasn't going to acknowledge God or God's will or God's program or God's ways or God's sovereignty or God's plan. There was, there was going to be nothing, none of that. He was going to just, hey God, you know, I got my own plan and uh, you're not part of it. And my plan's bigger than yours and I'm bigger than you and my gods are bigger than your you. So period, I'm going to do what I want to do. Wow. And here's another thing that's really bothering me. I want to just share this with you. Because what he was guilty of, the fundamental sin of Belshazzar, was he was guilty of rejecting the word of God. God's word said that the kingdom of Babylon would be destroyed by a succeeding nation. That succeeding nation was marching on the city of Babylon... And the, and the fruition or the fulfillment of the word of God was about to take place. And Belshazzar said, I ain't going to let it happen. His primary sin before God 
was that he rejected the counsel and the word of God. I'll tell you why I'm very concerned about this. We live in a nation that is turning from the counsel of the word of God. We live in a nation today that unfortunately is trying to call that which God says is wrong, we're trying to make it right. And it's not. Not only is that true as a nation, but I want to ask you this, is it true of you as an individual? Are you guilty of contempt towards God by rejecting the counsel of the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God? Here's another thing I'm concerned about. I'm concerned that God's church is rejecting the Word of God and the counsel of God. We need to recognize and understand that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't even know what that is without turning to the Word of God. Because we are saved before God from His certainty of His judgment when we put our faith and trust in Christ. But faith comes by hearing and by hearing the Word of God. We are living in a culture today where God's own church is guilty of contempt before God for rejecting the very word of God or the foundation of his program and his kingdom. We need to repent from that. We need to turn from that or we will experience the certainty of God's judgment just as Belshazzar experienced the same judgment that we're going to read about and find out about. We live in a culture today that's more concerned about how to get people into churches rather than what we tell them when they get there. And we've got to be careful that we do not flaunt that contempt in the face of God. We're more worried about programs. We're more, more, more worried about attendance. More, we're more worried about our budgets. We're worried about everything but preaching and declaring the truth of the Word of God. And in that, we are guilty of contempt before God. And you know what? And there's nothing, there's nothing comfortable about saying that. But it's true. I talked to a good friend who gave his life to Christ when he was with the Rams, and now this guy's on fire for the Lord. And he said, brother, let me tell you something that I'm learning as I go across the country, and he doesn't have to tell me anything I don't already know. Because I got teams that come through the city of Anaheim to play against the Angels, and I'll tell you this, without exception, there may be one or two guys in the entire league that open the Bible and teach the Word of God. And when I got guys that are walking out saying, Brother, man, I appreciate you opening up the Word and teaching us something, because everywhere we go around this country, all we're hearing are the philosophies of men and what they think and how they feel about stuff. But it's so refreshing to have somebody just preach the Word of God. That's a statement being made there. Anyway, my, this friend of mine who's in South Carolina says, Brother, let me tell you something. There is no joy when you preach repentance. There's none. And you, why, you know why there's none? Because it's convicting. Anytime in the Word of God that you see repentance that's preached, you know what you found, the result? You found brokenness. You found humility. You found tears. You found regret. And you found people that were crying out to God and asking for forgiveness for what they had done. There's no joy in that message. But there's truth. And there's deliverance. And we cannot excuse ourselves and get away from the truth of the Word of God so we can make people feel comfortable in their sin. 
Daniel was a man of conviction and courage and he was a man that was prepared because he knew the word of God and God used him to fill the vacuum and Daniel was a man that always upheld the word of God in truth. And we're going to find that as we look at this and unfortunately or maybe fortunately we don't have any time to get into the rest of this but we will the next time we're together. But I'm just going to ask you a question. Are you in contempt of God? If you're trying to make what God says wrong, you're trying to make it right, then you're in contempt of God. If the Word of God is convicting you about an area of sin in your life and you're not willing to repent and to turn from it, then you're guilty of contempt towards God. And you need to get right with God. Because I'll guarantee you this, that God is a patient, loving God. But don't be mocked. Don't be deceived. What a man sows, he's going to reap. And one day will come judgment for your actions. And what's wonderful about God, he says this, hey, you know what? Judge yourself before i got to step in and judge you. That's a wonderful truth. And that's good news. We don't like to hear it, but that's great news because it keeps us from the inevitability of the certainty of God's judgment. We'll get into that next time, and it'll be interesting to see who comes and wants to hear that. Father, thank you for your word. We just thank you for the truth of it. I just pray that as I consider my own guilt before you, that I would confess that sin the times in my life where I think I know better than you, the times in my life where I seek the counsel of others before I come to you first for wisdom, the times in my life where I want to make that which you say wrong, I want to make it right and I want to rationalize it and justify it so that I can enjoy the pleasure of that moment, ignoring the consequences of that decision. God, I just thank you that you love us enough that you bring this to to our attention through the power of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I just pray for all of us that are here today that find you in, that, that are found in contempt sometimes of your word and your ways and your will. That we would, like Nebuchadnezzar, humble ourselves before you, before you step in and cause us to go nuts. That you would uh, accept our cry of forgiveness and our plea for mercy. And we just thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you for the promises that you make, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we just love you. And we love you only because you first loved us. And yet while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. You hunted us down with this great mercy and this gift of forgiveness. And you offered to it as a free gift. You tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we praise you and we thank you. Amen.